0: everyone, welcome to Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven through the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is going to be a long one. We're going to be talking about Asada Shakur, an influential member of the Black Liberation Army in the 1970s. She ended up on the run after an intense incident on the turnpike near East Brunswick and many court trials. Although Shakur found herself embroiled in crime for much of her political career, we're just going to focus on the situation that occurred with the New Jersey state lines and how it landed her as the first woman on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. With a $2 million bounty on her head, let's learn more about the activist turned fugitive on this episode of Tales from the Garden State. But before we get started, here's today's terrifying tidbit. According to FBI.gov, there are 387 fugitives that are, that they are currently looking for, with crimes ranging from human trafficking to cybercrimes to murder. There are currently 42 people on the most wanted terrorist list, with our girl, Asada Shakur, or legally Joanne Deborah Chesimard, at the top of the list. So let's get started. Asada Shakur was born Joanne Deborah Byron on July 16, 1947, in Jamaica, Queens, New York. Throughout this story, I'm just going to refer to her as Asada or Shakur, just for consistency and clarity. When Asada was little, she moved to Wilmington, North Carolina to live with her mother and grandparents after her parents divorced. At this time, segregation was running rampant, so let's just have a brief run-through of some of the laws that were impeding the comfort, success, and ease of life for people of color at the time. Jim Crow laws, which were aggravatingly named after a black racist caricature from a minstrel show, were aimed at keeping white people at the top of society and everyone else, especially black people, at the bottom. There were separate bathrooms, schools, water fountains, restaurants, entrances to buildings, seatings for theaters, seating on public transportation. The list goes on. These laws strive to make every part of life become saturated in racism and ignorance. Some examples of those in North Carolina were, quote-unquote, Books shall not be interchangeable between the white and colored schools, but shall continue to be used by the first race using them. This was very obviously a way to keep children of color learning from outdated books that were undoubtedly in poor condition due to lack of funding for these schools. Libraries that had to have designated spaces for black readers to enjoy their novels and magazines. Even prisons were racially segregated. Now, back to Asada. Her grandparents always instilled pride and confidence in their young granddaughter, Tangra not to take any crap off of anybody and not to shrink herself to make white people feel more comfortable or superior. She was constantly told to hold her head up high. A couple of years go by and Asada moves with her newly remarried mother and back to Queens. Life isn't very rosy for her. Her home life was filled with shouting and vicious arguments, and the family was not doing well financially. She ran away from home a lot, hitchhiking and staying with strangers across the city and with relatives back in North Carolina. So, she ends up staying with her aunt, whom she idolized. Asada converts to Catholicism after she enrolls at a Cathedral High School, an all-girls Catholic school in Manhattan. She went there for a few months, transferred to a public high school, and then dropped out, later earning her GED. Like many students have remarked as they grow older, Shakur was disappointed with the sanitized version of history that she was taught in school, especially Black history. When she reflected back on her childhood, she realized how the education system had put blinders over her eyes and denied the realities that she saw in her everyday life. Now we're in the mid-60s. Asada goes on to work some odd low-paying jobs just to make ends meet. She enrolled at the borough of Manhattan Community College and transferred to the City College of New York. She would hang out with her friends, go to shows, bars, anywhere across the five boroughs. One day at a bar called West End, Asada and one of her friends, Bonnie, met a group of African students. Although initially their conversations were about light topics such as food and living in the city, they began to talk about topics that changed Asada's life forever. The year is 1964. Asada and Bonnie are hanging out with their friends as usual at the West End Bar, you know, and then they begin talking about the Vietnam War, a very hot topic at the time. Shakur says of the conversation, I never forgot that day. We're taught at such an early age to be against communists, yet most of us don't have the faintest idea what communism is. Only a fool lets somebody else tell them who his enemy is. The next few years displayed a marked change in Shakur's life. From here, she branched into different activist groups as her participating in political demonstrations, such as peaceful protests and sit-ins. She cut her hair off or grew out her natural fro, rejecting the Eurocentric beauty standards that were even more rigid at that time. In 1967, she was arrested for the first time when she and a hundred other students at her college locked the entrance to one of the college buildings in protest of the absence of an African-American studies program, as well as a very few black faculty at the school. These groups were against the Vietnam War, they supported student rights, and they opened her eyes to black liberation groups. Also in 1967, during a meeting held by the Golden Drums, an activism group that was focused on black rights, Assata met her husband, Louis Chesimard. Her name then became Joanne Chesimard, which, as I said before, is a name you'll see her listed as on the FBI websites and the wanted posters. This was a short-lived marriage, and the two separated in 1968 and were officially divorced by the end of 1970, when Shakur was 23 years old. The same year, while taking a trip to Oakland, California, Shakur learned of the Black Panther Party. Upon returning to New York, she joined the Harlem branch of the group, where she helped with the free breakfast program and organized community outreach, but she was overall unimpressed with the Black Panthers' lack of interaction and teamwork with other Black organizations. She also said of the party that they didn't dig deep enough into the roots of Black history. She stated, The basic problems stem from the fact that the BPP had no systemic approach to political education. They were reading from the Red Book, but didn't know who Harriet Tubman, Marcus Garvey, and Nat Turner were. A, lot of the, a whole lot of them barely understood any kind of history, Black, African, or otherwise. Shakur was also uncomfortable with Huey Newton's increasingly domineering status. His style became Supreme Commander and then Supreme Servant, and no one openly criticized or questioned him. It was kind of like the whole, we're just going to let him get away with this? (laughs) So it was becoming more cultish in her eyes and was reflecting more of an oppressive power structure that, you know, reflected what, you know, those groups were supposed to be working away from, rather than guidance to a more equal society. Beginning to see a lack of open discourse and constructive criticism within the party, Shakur quit the Black Panthers and just began traveling the country. The following year, in 1971, Asada officially changed her name from Joanne Chesimard to Asada Olugbala Shakur. Asada means she who struggles, Olugbala means love for the people, and Shakur means the thankful. Asada said of her name change, the name Joanne began to irk my nerves. I had changed a lot and moved to a different beat. I didn't feel like no Joanne or no Negro or no American. I felt like an African woman. My mind, heart, and soul had gone back to Africa, but my name was still stranded in Europe somewhere. Shakur's activism was inspired by many different groups, from Native American prisoners and Alcatraz protesting the exploitation by the government and shattered treaties that were established between the Natives and federal government, to the Red Guard, a far-left radical Chinese youth group focused in San Francisco's Chinatown that fought against racism, police brutality, and imperialism. These groups made Asada feel like she wasn't doing enough to fight for her people and for her community, and that there were many more ways that she could be effecting change in this country. So it was at this point in Shakur's life that she joined the Black Liberation Army, which had been labeled as an anarchist group by the FBI. Once the Black Panther Party had been marred by members' prison sentences, FBI sabotage, and important leader of the party's deaths, such as Fred Hampton— a new movement was starting to gain some traction in the Black activism community with members from the Black Panthers and the Republic of New Africa. It's unclear exactly who started the Black Liberation Army. Asada herself and Eldridge Cleaver are sometimes credited with creating it, but that seems to be something that most sources can't, you know, exactly agree on. Either way, the goals of the movement were to essentially just blitzkrieg attack the pillars of repression in American society. It was not, much, it was not as much... Of an organization, as it was like an ideology and an approach to acquiring equality for people and resisting injustice. They said their goal was to quote unquote, take up arms for the liberation and self-determination of black people in the United States. They often targeted police because they had pretty much like the most power to inflict harm on black people in every way, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, and financially when they, you know were sent to prison, and couldn't provide for their families. It seems like the main message was that people were no longer going to take the oppression sitting down and were going to actively actively and violently fight back against it. This is where Shakur was just committing a slew of crimes like bank robberies, attempted murders, kidnapping, prison breaks, the list just goes on. She even got shot in the stomach when she was scuffling with the guests at the Statler Hilton Hotel in Manhattan. But somehow throughout all of this, she just kept evading incarceration. Every case was either dismissed or she was acquitted of the crime. But, unfortunately for Asada, her luck was about to run out. On May 2nd, 1973, Asada Shakur and BLA members Zaid Malik Shakur and Sundiata Coli were driving on the New Jersey Turnpike, allegedly on their way to Philly and then eventually D.C. At around 1 o'clock in the morning, they were pulled over by state trooper Werner Forster and trooper James Harper for a busted light and for driving over the speed limit. Trooper Harper asked for an ID, noticed that something was off, and then asked Akolai to step out of the vehicle. Harper then came around to the passenger side of the car, opened the door, and was questioning Asada and Zaid. Because of his growing suspicion of the trio, he drew his weapon, pointed it at them, and told them to put their hands in the air. From this, an argument ensued, and a shootout followed shortly after, resulting in Shakur and Trooper Harper getting wounded, and the deaths of Zaid, Malik Shakur and Trooper Forster. Forster was found shot twice in the head by his own gun and Zaid was found dead near their vehicle. The driver, Okolai, continued down the turnpike with Asada bleeding in the passenger seat for a few miles before being apprehended by a squad of patrol cars. The living two activists got out of their car but Okolai dipped and ran into the woods while the police were unloading their clips on him but Asada surrendered with her hands up, covered in blood. Asada was charged with, now get ready for this, First degree murder, second degree murder, atrocious assault and battery, assault and battery against a police officer, assault with a dangerous weapon, assault with intent to kill, illegal possession of a weapon, and armed robbery. After being arrested, Asada was kept in just horrible conditions and treated probably how you'd expect a black female activist who had allegedly murdered a police officer would be treated, especially in the 70s. She was interrogated in the hospital room and she was handcuffed to the bed. Her food was spat in in the prison and she didn't have access to any exercise or receive any appropriate medical attention once she left the hospital. Kept under 24-hour surveillance, Asada was kept in solitary confinement in the basement of the men's prison in Middlesex County. It is argued that no other inmate in the history of the New Jersey justice system has been treated this terribly. On October 9th, 1973, Shakur's case was brought to trial. I'm going to do my best to keep this as simple as possible because this was a very complicated case. There's a lot of defense and prosecution attorneys, but I'm just going to go over the highlights of the case. When Shakur went on trial, it was believed that the cards were already stacked against her. Some of the jury admitted to already having prejudice against Asada. Everybody already knew who she was, so they, a lot of people had already had preconceived notions about who she was as a person. There were also signs that the defense team's office was bugged, papers from Asada's trial went mysteriously missing from her lawyer's house, and were conveniently found with the NYPD, somehow. The defense couldn't get an expert witness on this case because at the time, being on the side of a person being labeled a terrorist and a cop killer would be nothing short of career suicide. Lennox Hines, the national director of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, referred to the trial as a kangaroo court and illegal lynching. For those that don't know, according to Merriam-Webster, a kangaroo court is a mock trial where laws and regular legal proceedings are disregarded and the judgment is reached randomly or unfairly. It's called a kangaroo court because, you know, kangaroos jump, and the prosecution would basically be jumping over any evidence that could potentially vindicate the defendant. We'll get to why it was called that in a minute. This trial ran until October 23rd, where a change of venue was requested to achieve a more impartial jury. This would be nearly impossible because Shakur was well-known by this point and seen as an enemy of the state. The average person was probably not going to be on her side and would not be perceptive to any evidence the defense could offer. The trial was picked back up in Morris County from Middlesex County the following January to February, which was definitely a disingenuous attempt at removing bias from the jury. At the time, Morris County was over 95% white, Even to this day, the census reports that Morris County is 82% white and only 4% black. The chance of a fair trial was rather slim at this point. During this time, Shakur was moved around to a bunch of different prisons. She was at a prison in Burlington County, then she was moved to Rikers Island, New York City. At some point during this wild trial, Asada became pregnant by a BLA member named Kamal Siddiqui while they were both in jail because remember, she was kept in an immense prison for some reason. Her pregnancy caused the case to result in a mistrial. On September 11, 1974, Shakur gave birth to her only child, a daughter named Kokuya Shakur at Elmhurst General Hospital in Queens, New York. In 1978, Shakur was transferred to a prison in West Virginia, but then back to New Jersey at the Clinton Correctional Facility in 1979 after the maximum security unit at the West Virginia prison had closed. In total, Shakur went on trial seven times. 24 hours after the last trial, the jury finally convicted Shakur of Forster's murder. Shakur had the defense that because she was shot in the arm, her arm was partially paralyzed, so she did not have the ability to operate a firearm in the way that Trooper Forrester was killed. Both a surgeon and a pathologist report backed up the claims with no rebuttal from the prosecutors. There were also allegedly no fingerprints on any guns or bullets from Shakur. In addition, Forrester's grieving widow was presented on NBC News, an act that Shakur believes was used to weaponize a white woman's tears against the black defendants. So... In 1977, she was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with an additional 30 years. Plot twist, or not, because we know that she's a fugitive, she escapes from the maximum security unit at the New Jersey prison. She didn't do it on her own, though. In 1979, a couple of lingering BLA members stole about $100,000 from a store in Paramus and bought a bunch of pistols and a stick of dynamite. Pretending to be visitors to get inside the prison, the BLA members held two correctional officers hostage, stole a van, and absconded with the convict. Asada ended up in Cuba in 1984 and gained political asylum, which was granted by none other than Fidel Castro. She was able to reunite with her daughter, Kukuya, there, and the 75-year-old remains in Cuba to this day. In 2013, Asada Shakur was put on the FBI's most-wanted terrorist list with a bounty of $2 million for her capture and return to the U.S., this will probably never happen because Cuba has repeatedly declined extraditing Shakur back to the U.S. This was a very complicated timeline with a lot of differing accounts on the exact events that took place, but this is a story that I gathered across many sources. So here are some answers to some things that he might have been wondering throughout the duration of this episode. Well, what happened to Sundiata Kolai? Well, he was convicted of Forster's murder as well, but was given parole in in 2022. Interestingly. He was only given parole because of the more forgiving laws back when the crime was committed. According to Justice Barry Albin, had acoli committed the crime today, he most likely would have been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Many parties, including the current New Jersey governor, Phil Murphy, were very displeased with this outcome. Asada was actually charged with Zaid's murder, even though the surviving trooper, James Harper, had allegedly admitted to killing him. And, probably the biggest question of all, as the story has been going on, Assata Shakur was the step-aunt and godmother to Tupac Shakur. It's believed by many that she was targeted by the FBI because she was part of what they had labeled as a terrorist group. The FBI has historically been known to attack Black liberation movements, so this assertion isn't too unfounded. Angela Davis, who's another very famous activist, described her as being a compassionate human being with an unswerving commitment to justice. Davis said that the FBI is attempting to frighten people who are involved in struggles today. Asada is admired for being a woman activist who fought against racism, sexism, and was willing to achieve her and the BLA's goals by any means necessary. She was fearless, aggressive, and unapologetic. Many believe that she's innocent, and she's become a popular figure in Black American history, especially in hip-hop, and songs such as Common's A Song for Asada and Public Enemies' Rebel Without a Pause. On the flip side of this narrative, New Jersey State Trooper Colonel Patrick J. Callahan had a very opposite view of Shakur. Callahan, who had heard of this case as a child, said of the activist-slash-fugitive, she is a domestic terrorist and a convicted killer, and that is the truth. There's certainly a difference between that and a civil rights activist. There's certainly civil rights activists in our history who have moved the narrative forward. She did not. He spoke of how Forrester's family is still mourning his death all these years later. Callahan says that this is her legacy, that he believes this murder effectively trumps any stride she made as an activist. I personally think that in the beginning, Asada had a much clearer vision on the goal of equality and justice for all, but as time went on, I think many of the acts that she and the BLA were committing were becoming counterintuitive to real, concrete progress. The BLA dissolved not too long after this incident in the early 80s, and that era of black liberation movements was pretty much over. There may have been a justice, yay, moment in today's story, depending on how you view the scenario. Asana does not view herself as a criminal, but rather a persecuted voice for the voiceless across the world. She argues that she was treated the way that she was throughout her life because she was black. Some argue that the trial was based purely on facts and that there was no racial bias involved, but you can make your decision about that. Whenever someone complains about people of color making everything about race, remember that there was a whole suite of laws that were based around subjugating non-white people for nearly 80 years, and they have had lasting ripple effects on society. If a family couldn't get a house in their desired neighborhood with quality education, clean water, steady job offerings, and housing that isn't built from hazardous materials and access to nutritious foods, that affects their lineage for generations to come. It's much easier to go from step 4 to 5 than from step 2 to 5. Everyone faces challenges and everyone puts in a lot of effort to achieve the next step of life, but it is much more difficult if you've got socially constructed obstacles in your path. And, you know, with all this context, hopefully you can kind of see why organizations such as the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army even came to be in the first place, even if the execution of their ideals weren't always, you know, the most spectacular. But however you view the situation, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this podcast. I'll see you all next week. Goodbye!